Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World from A16Z. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features A16Z Bio and Health General Partner Vijay Pandey in conversation with Jeffrey Kaditz, founder of multiple companies, including Affirm, and most recently QBio, where he is also CEO and CTO. This episode is a fascinating deep dive into human imaging and health forecasting. After getting hit by a car, Jeffrey got obsessed with how MRIs work. So I got this MRI and they got my images. They ended up giving myself a crash course in how MRI worked. And then realized, because of my background in computational physics, that like the way that MRI worked was highly unscientific. He took that insight and applied it to building a new kind of imaging, one that creates a digital twin that can be tracked over time. What we're really trying to build, I think, is something I'd call LBMs, or large biological models of, the, of a human. And part of this is the idea of a digital twin that kind of tracks your state and how it's evolving over time. And if the digital twin model can be tracked over time, Human health could, theoretically, eventually be as forecastable as the weather. So let's listen to Jeffrey and BJ chat about this future of tracking data and predicting outcomes. You're listening to BioNews World from A16Z. Hey, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on BioNews World. Great to be here, BJ. Before getting to what you're doing with Q, I think actually our audience would love to hear about your founder journey. In particular, this is your fourth startup that you founded. Fifth. Um, fifth. Okay. Wow. Well, yeah. I've lost track. Uh, what got you onto this track of being a startup founder uh, and, and this journey that got you here? Well, it's kind of a combination thing. One of those, one of those kids that like took everything apart and tried to put it back together. Definitely started programming early when I saw my first Commodore 64. Yeah. I, I want to just poke on one thing, this taking things apart, because I love this as well. Like what did you take apart? Radios, TVs, especially the CRT ones. Like yeah, I remember when yeah. I was, um, I think I was like seven when my parents got our first color TV. So we had this little black and white TV that only had like eight channels on it. And you had like a coat hanger on the top to try and improve the signal. And when they were like, we're going to throw this out. And I was like, well, I want to take it apart. Yeah. I was warned that the TVs have some capacitor in them with high, uh, like yeah. quite dangerous. And there's also like vacuum. Like it's, a, it's like a vacuum. And there's also some, I think some pretty gnarly coating in, inside there Yeah, uh, that I didn't learn until much older. So who knows what impact that had on me, but you know, I think there's something about messing with your hands that then programming is just a lot safer, right? Uh, just, in my case, a lot in my case, I was in fourth grade and I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, but my dad was the car accident. The car was sitting in our driveway for nine months and I decided to start taking that apart because I was convinced 
that by the time my parents come home, I'd be able to put it back together. And I learned in that day that it's a way easier to take it apart than it is to put it back together. That was one of the first lessons. Is, and then my early on, it was like that. And then I started, you know, couldn't take pictures. So I had to like start taking notes when I took things apart so that I could even remember where things went. But um, went, to, went to Carnegie Mellon, actually originally went there um, for physics in the process of doing my undergraduate research, which kind of ties actually together you know, in, in a roundabout way to Q, I started doing a lot more serious scientific programming. And so I realized that I wasn't a very good software engineer. And I later learned that computer science is not really the best way to become a software engineer. But I was like, oh, I'm going to this school that has a pretty good computer science program. I might as well study that while I'm here too. And it'll help me with like the research I'm doing. And I ended up really liking what it turns out is I would consider to be more information theory than like programming. It's pretty rare until somewhat recently to teach real software engineering at universities because I think it's that's viewed as big vocational rather yeah. than educational. It's kind of a, a weird perspective. And it's actually interesting because information theory makes sense. And sort of, It's a place where maybe physics and computer science kind of touch each other a little bit. Right when I was um, an undergraduate, like, the first, I think, like graduate or under like graduate textbook on quantum information theory, like quantum computing, was like published, and I got it. And it was so clear to me how these worlds were kind of going to collide, and like what is the minimum amount of information to represent a system, and that it stores and things like that. It was just super fascinating, and so that seemed like an inevitable thing to me. What then makes you decide then to go into healthcare? It was, it was a combination of things. It's been something I've been thinking about for a while, and like the really the two when I connect the docs, kind of in reverse. One was the computational physics stuff that I did as an undergrad, mm -hmm. where I was building, like trying to build kind of uh, very specific models of these systems to make, to basically at the end of the day, predict how to make cheaper particle physics detectors and, and still have enough SNR to detect whatever event you want that you're targeting at least. And the, the other was having a personal kind of health scare in, in 2008, where I was actually hit by a car. And zooming out, in retrospect, it wasn't that big of a deal because my, I didn't ever think my life was in danger. But, and I also, it was like a situation where the cause of the issues I was having was clearly from getting hit by a car while I was on my bike. But no one could tell wow. me what was wrong with me or no one would actually gather the information required to figure out what was wrong with me because they could see me kind of hobbling around. But even though it turned out I was, had a broken hip and pelvis and internal bleeding, and people are like, oh, you're fine. If you had anything wrong with you, you couldn't walk into my doctor's office. You should do physical therapy. And that's kind of what I got. And then what ended up happening is two months after me doing physical therapy, they finally, I forced them to do an MRI. And they were like, you immediately need to have a hip replacement because you have a vascular stage four vascular necrosis in your hip. If you don't do it, you're going to lose your leg. You're going to have to cut up your leg. Yeah. We have an appointment for you in two days to get a hip replacement. I'm 27. Yeah. It's a triathlete. And I went from three months ago, I got by this car and you told me everything was fine. I don't need imaging. If I walked away, like I was able to walk away from it after like a week of being in a bed, you know, it was just probably a strained muscle. And, but, and so, but it was being told that, like, I remember like the world's standing still. And my, again, my life wasn't in danger, but the prospect of your choices are get a hip replacement or lose your leg after three months of being told you need physical therapy was like just a total lack of control and powerlessness. So I got this MRI and I got my images that I ended up giving myself a crash course in how MRI worked and then realized because of my background in computational physics that like the way that MRI worked was highly unscientific. So what do you mean by unscientific? I think that'll come as a surprise. Yeah. 
So in physics, you know, when we run experiments, you know, we think of the output of an experiment being a set of measurements that have some uncertainty and error, right? And so then you can do some data, you can do some analysis on that data to try and reconstruct what went into this experiment or why this experiment happened the way it did based on what you think are the laws of physics. But the measurements are the measurements and they're unchangeable. The analysis is changeable. In MRI, it's really an analog process. You can think of an MRI effectively as if you took a Polaroid picture or like like a exposure-based picture and then scanned it in. Right? The actual, but like during the acquisition, the actual information at each voxel is not quantized. It's just an intensity, right? And it's grayscale, and so it's really a low-dimensional projection of a higher-dimensional space, which is the electromagnetic properties of biological tissue in your body. And so the output from an image, there's no error bars on an image. It does, and there's no uncertainty. And we can kind of go into the technical details for why it is. And it's not because the people who invented MRI were idiots. It's because more or less is really because computers were too slow to do anything better uh, in the 1970s. Well, yeah. And I think in medicine, it's, you know, it's called imaging. It's about looking yeah. at a picture, not doing a, a, a physics experiment. Yeah. What, what, what do you get by doing the physics you know, that you couldn't get from the picture? Well, a couple of things happen. One is the information that comes out is quantitative the same way when you get, you know, your cholesterol measured, you know, it has a plus or minus 10% error. So that means that you can actually measure change. Measuring, quantifying change is not possible in MRI for a number of reasons. And people confuse MRI for being, being quantitative because it's to scale. You can use MRI as long as there's no artifacts to measure like the radius of a cyst. And that could be pretty accurate, but that just means it's to scale. That doesn't mean it's quantitative information or there's errors on it, right? It doesn't mean you know how well it fits something, like a, a model. So one of the things you get is just a measure of reproducibility and the ability to compare two things, right? You cannot quantitatively compare two things if they do not have an error, right? You, mm-hmm. you just can't. Yeah. I think of images as really like, like low-dimensional projections of some higher-dimensional space that we actually can't see all of. But if you could measure in three dimensions the properties of a volume of space. Yeah. Let's say you had a, a full 3D model of something, you could do whatever 2D projections. And it's yeah, as if you could take whatever photograph you wanted. Take whatever slice you want in any plane. Yeah. Whereas if I can directly measure those things simultaneously in a single pass, I actually have a, like a, like this very high dimensional data set, like a tensor that, that you can then analyze. And so... A lot of people are applying, let's say, like AI or things like that to interpret these low-dimensional projections of, of like obje- an objective object. And it's in, with human labels. So it's basically limited by the ability of a human to in- interpret this low-dimensional projection. But I think there's a massive opportunity to say, well, why are we handicapping machines to interpret low-dimensional subspaces rather than actually just letting them loose on this high-dimensional space with much richer information? Especially it's not just a three-dimensional voxel image, but it's the full electromagnetic spectrum of the material. Inside of it. Yeah. Just some listeners uh, who never heard about Q will have a little more context. What does Q do? You know, there's people have are all upset about LLMs, right? Because trained on all this text data that's very cheap and available on the internet. Like what we're really trying to build, I think, is something I'd call LBMs or large biological models of the of a human. And, and part of this is the idea of a digital twin that kind of tracks your state and how it's evolving over time. 
but that's really the input into uh, these models. And, and ultimately, um, I believe people will control these models of themselves, who has access to them. And I think we will be able to have kind of personalized healthcare agents that are sitting on this data and making forecasts about our health and probably giving us recommendations on how to live a healthy life. And if needed, saying, scheduling us automatically a, a visit with, let's say, a cardiologist and automatically reaching out and finding a cardiologist that's probably the best for you anywhere in the world. But really, this kind of goes back to what I was talking about is if you want to apply big data or the idea of big data and forecasting that we've done in content targeting or ad targeting or whatever you want to, so even to you, like even the, with the weather really, first you need to have some ability to digitize the physical state that you're interested in forecasting, right? And that, that actually is the foundation of the scientific method, I would add, right? It's like scientific method is more or less measure the state, some properties of a system over time, see if you can predict the next state. If you can't, adjust your model, collect more data, refit. And then if you do correctly predict the next state of the system, then take a step back and say, okay, now what happens if I perturb the system? Can I still predict its next state? Right. And, and ultimately my question is, is how do we get to a point where our understanding of the human body is that good? How do we get to a point where now we can make forecasts at least as good as the weather? You do imaging, you do uh, other types of measurements, right? The idea of using a single kind of measurement or information to predict the future state of a system is, is inherently fragile and will not do that well. Like the information value, you want orthogonal information value about the same system um, across multiple variables. And so one thing is, yes, we want to be able to measure something about reproducibly about somebody's anatomy or anatomical structure, which I think traditionally we call biomedical imaging. But we combine that with genetics, biochemistry, vitals, medical history, like wearable information. And some of this information is more expensive and time consuming to gather, but in some of it is cheaper, but I would say has lower fidelity. So it's like you have high fidelity, expensive data and low fidelity, cheap data, but it's together this multimodal data where we start to be able to have this idea of a digital twin. Like what's uh, one of the more powerful kind of things you can do? Well, we've had a number of situations where the summaries that we can present doctors, no one piece of information was enough. Or in, in, in this, is, this, it wasn't enough for any AI system either, let alone a human. But the conclusion you come through from one dimension of information was very different than if you had three. And in, the, in, in one kind of example is in the case of a, a something, let's say, being labeled as a benign lesion on somebody's thyroid by a radiologist, right? Mm -hmm. But this per, a person also having a very high uh, lymphocyte, white blood cell count, some like interleukins that were very high. And our system saying, well, actually, these things all add up these are these could be related in the worst case. They could be totally unrelated. This could just be like a person with a cyst and a viral infection, but like it also could be leukemia. And you know, so our wow. system is able to kind of summarize and triangulate between these things and say, hey, based on everything we know about this person, here's the things that they're most at risk for. And now this isn't a diagnostic, but it can say, here's the things this person's most at risk for, and here's the reasons why, right? And then that's very useful for a doctor because one of the biggest problems you have to solve with this company is if you're measuring 3 billion points of information about a person in a 30-minute period, which is what we do today, and we can improve that number and make it faster, then what you really have to be able to do is summarize that for a doctor. Because mm -hmm. yes. even if you can make it cheap enough right, and fast enough to do this at a population scale, the next question is, is how do you summarize it? And the, the easiest way to think about this really is it's, like, it's almost like um, making a search engine for your body, right? 
when we go to Google and ask Google a question, it effectively summarizes the internet for us. It says, here's the most, here's the part of the internet that matters for what you like, what you're looking for, but it looks at the whole internet. So similarly, yep. like when a doctor interfaces with our system, like, like it's, we're summarizing that system for the doctor. Yeah. Well, and you use the LLM analogy earlier, but like these large biological models, a natural thing to do is to run queries on it and answer these questions, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing is that I think that there's a really clear path at scale to really removing a lot of the bias in medicine. If we want to like the limitation that LLMs are going to have in medicine, from my perspective, is they're really limited by the quality of Sheena labels. And, and I think that's kind of a low bar. And, and, and it's not because it's not because, you know, there aren't doctors that are way more capable than me or, or anything. It just has to do with like a machine that can digest every known clinical study ever produced um, and look at every EHR ever, and then and analyze that, and then within the context of a person, like you can't compete with that. However, yeah. most of the data that we have about the human body is subjective. It's in, if you look at an EHR, it's information that is a doctor's opinion. It's a note. It's like I think this person has this. They reported this. There's not a lot of quantitative information about somebody's state, and really, that's what we need. We need to be able to c- cut objective measurements about a person's state and correlate that to outcomes. And, and that's really how I think we remove uh, a bias. And, and, and that's how we build, that's how really you build what I'm saying is an LBM that cannot just like, let's say, beat any one person, but beat all peaceful people ever. Well, so I can imagine that you get pushback in a couple of areas. Like one would be this incidentaloma area where you mm-hmm. find something and now you spin up the healthcare system. How do you think about that? I think that saying that we're close to automating all diagnostics is a mistake. And I think that in general, I think statistically you can show that screening, even like you can do a quick mathematical experiment. You can show that even with automated diagnostics that are 99.99% sensitive and specific, if you had that for every known human disease, if you screened every person on earth for it every year, you'd have a billion false positives a year. Like, so, so you kind of, even with perfect diagnostic screening doesn't work, right? And that's, so that's a real thing. But what I do think is absolutely possible, especially given the fact that the first order problem in, in preventative care is there are not enough human doctors to see every patient every year. So that immediately mm-hmm. begs the question is, okay, so then how do you automatically prioritize a doctor to spend time with the har- highest ROI people? Like who's at highest risk for the most expensive things mm-hmm. if we want to? How do we use limited healthcare resources optimally. And, and we have to be able to do that like in a audit, relatively automated way without precious doctor's time. So I think that being able to uh, replace a doctor's decision-making entirely, very hard, but, as I've mentioned. But I think that in the sh- near term, I think it's, it's possible today to, let's say, um, help a doctor prioritize their time. So rather than it kind of being a... Yeah. For whoever schedules first sees the doctor. It's like a doctor's kind of cue gets managed, and it's like, oh, this person is like extremely high risk. Maybe I'll bump up and, and see them sooner. Yeah, and especially you've now measured a lot of things, but also over time, right? So you can look at changes from baseline and individual baseline versus population averages. And That's right. And uh, it, presumably, that temporal data adds a lot in terms of sort of figuring out if someone actually is in a dangerous situation. It's about the dimensionality and like one of the dimensions is time. It's not just a dimensionality of a single point in time. It's like, the, like it's actually time as another dimension. And it's right. And that also, that helps dramatically. Like, like again, like in the case of, we've seen overwhelmingly in the case where people have lesions that are malignant, 
they have some chemical abnormalities as well. Right. And yeah. you can imagine if you don't, if you can't make it cheap enough to do all this together, what happens is somebody gets some abnormal reading. Now the doctor has to decide where they order a bunch of follow-up labs that could take a month to get done and get back. And like, you're, you're not wasting precious time if the person has a real issue. This sounds like it's expensive, right? You're doing a lot of imaging and a lot of like, how does that work? Like, how could this work in the system? Well, it's, it's actually not that expensive. And I think that at scale right now, it could be uh, less than a cell phone bill. Well, how's that possible? Well, part of the technology that we've built actually allows you to not just uh, gather a lot more information, but do it a lot faster. And you can actually kind of rethink scanner designs entirely and make them much cheaper. You've built your own scanner. That's right. Yeah. And that scanner brings down costs because the scanner's cheaper or it's faster or... Both the scanner itself, like it, you do not need, you know, MRI works the way it does because you need very, very perfect hardware. Like you can actually, I actually think of an MRI scanner as they're built today and have been built for the last 50 years is really analog computers that compute a fast Fourier transform of the human body. Yeah. Well, in many ways, they, because they couldn't do complex math because the computers are 1960s computers, they had to make the math simple by making the magnet really homogeneous and to make the math problem as simple as possible. But if you can do more math, you can have worse magnets. Yeah. Not only do you, it also lets you rethink a lot of the assumptions that goes into the hardware. And, but it also unlocks a whole lot of other things like it would allow you to actually build scanners with much higher fields. Because at certain fields, um, MRI, like the physics, the interaction of the body becomes so complicated that it's like you can't linearize it even if you make crazy assumptions about the homogeneity of the magnet. So solving this problem as a generalized physics problem, which we have now done, and I'm very proud of the team to have been solved. I mean, a problem that had never been solved before. So you've addressed the cost issue and you've addressed the incidental only issue, but um, how do you get it working in the system? Who pays for this? Is this something that payers pay for or providers pay for? Is this something out of pocket? Like, how does it work within the healthcare system? I think it's a combination of the above. And we're doing pilots, like, and we have been doing a pilot. We haven't actually commercialized a lot of technology and we've, it's been out of pocket for now. But, you know, we've gotten a tremendous amount of support from clinician systems. And we now are setting up pilots with some um, major healthcare systems who are really interested in this and see now see the benefits of doing this. But I, but I really think that we will never understand human health or disease and, uh, well enough to get in front of it unless we're, we understand the transitions before somebody becomes symptomatic. Because a lot of times when somebody has a symptom, it's kind of too late to do much. And the options are limited. We really have to understand before somebody's symptomatic, what that we can do to mitigate the problems. Yeah. Do you want the smoke detector or, or yeah. do you want to deal with the fire after, uh, after you can smell the smoke yourself? Yeah. And, 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 this is, and, and it's a complicated problem because the reality is, is that the healthcare system right now is only set up to deal with fires. It's yeah. not set up to respond yeah. to every smoke alarm. And so this, this is a systematic change, but, but like I said, you can just look at the number of doctors on the planet and the number and the rate of population growth. And it's just, it's untenable for a doctor to see every person on the planet. If the, the first thing we will need is to automate triage based on like objective information before we can have like really kind of ubiquitous preventive care. So Jeff, we're about to run out of time, but I'd uh, love to get two last questions from you. First one, what would you wish your younger self knew that you could advise now? I think you kind of have to decide in your journey, are you kind of a missionary, a mercenary or for one thing? And you can switch, mm -hmm. but on any particular segment of your life, I think you have to decide that. 
And if you're a missionary, I think you have to pick something you're passionate about and you want to see through. If you're a mercenary, I think you have to be very flexible and win the compromise and just figure out how to win. A big part of that is just pick something you love and do it. And, and most likely, if you're really good at it, you're going to figure out a way to make money at it. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so one last question. What do you do for your own health? A big thing for me is routine, which I don't have, but I'm the healthiest when I can just get into some routine. Sleeping regularly, getting some form of exercise on, on some regular uh, cadence, but that's tough to have, especially with a two and a half year old twins, it's tough to have any kind of real regularity. You know, uh, I'm not like a health nut. I try and eat healthy. I try and get enough sleep. I try and get enough exercise. Yeah. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Yeah. And the fun thing is that you, you both are, uh, you have built digital twins and real twins too, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, when it's, well, the other funny thing is that after tracking myself, I mean, I'm going to be one of the most tracked people now in the world. Sure. It's, it's been a, kind of amazing to see the kind of sinusoidal patterns of my health and seasonally, but also during different periods of a company or life. Just it's, um, it, and that's been super interesting to see. Totally. Totally. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on BioWitz World. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email BioEatsWorld at A16Z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures.